0: assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in American Studies. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin R.C. Goodsman, professor of history at Western Connecticut State University, about his new book, The Jeffersonians. Kevin's book is a detailed exploration of the Virginia dynasty, encompassing the presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe from 1801 to 1825. Kevin, it's great to have you on as a guest of the New Books Network.
1: Happy to be here, Caleb.
0: you know, first, you know, before getting in and talking about the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your background.
1: Well, I'm an army brat. I'm the son of two parents from Idaho, northern Idaho, which is a very remote country. I've lived in 12 states and one foreign country, or maybe two, depending how you count the District of Columbia. And I am now a professor of history at Western Connecticut State University, where this is my 21st year. Book we're going to be discussing is my sixth book. Most of them, four of them, are on the same general topic of the founding of the United States and early constitutional history.
0: And I'm wondering, you know, with this particular book, why did you choose to write it?
1: Well, uh, boy, that's an interesting question. I have written a biography of James Madison that's focused on his life as a constitution maker. I wrote a dissertation, which later became a book on Virginia in the Revolutionary Period. And my most recent book before this one was about Jefferson. And not it's not a biography. It's not about his political career. It's about his political program. So it has five chapters, each of which is about one of his chief political principles. And it shows how they flowed through his life, how they affected his political performance. And when I finished all that, I had done reading that led me to the question, well, why isn't there a book about Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe as presidents? We've only had two occasions in American history, when we had three consecutive two-term presidents. One was Clinton, W., and Obama. Clinton was kind of a moderately conservative Southern Democrat. Uh, W. was a neoconservative Republican, and Obama was a left-wing Democrat. One was from the South. One came from New England aristocracy. And one was from Hawaii, by way of, at least on his father's side, by way of Kenya. So the three of them had basically nothing in common. On the other hand, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were all Jeffersonian Republicans. They were all from Virginia. Jefferson and Madison were each other's best friends in the world. And Monroe had been, before he became president, Jefferson's law student, and Madison's Secretary of War and Secretary of State. So I thought... Well, there hasn't been a book on these people as presidents pursuing a common program, which I think they did for 24 years, and essentially they implemented the whole thing. So, why not write about that? It's an interesting subject. That's the answer.
0: When people think of uh, early America, I oftentimes think that the you know the state that they oftentimes think of is Massachusetts, obviously because uh, largely due to like the Boston Tea Party and just the you know the, the memorable uh, battles but you know you really point out how central virginia was to the early uh, american politics so i was wondering if you just talk a little bit about virginia virginia politics what the culture and economic life was at the time and why it is that four of the first five presidents were able to come from the state
1: well of course virginia is the oldest state it was the first british colony in the world first english colony in the world and it extended when Jefferson's presidency began all the way to Minnesota. It used to include the whole Midwest, besides West Virginia and Kentucky. So during the revolution, it provided much, a highly disproportionate share of political leadership. Peyton Randolph was president of the Continental Congress. George Washington, of course, was commander in chief of the army. There were other important Virginians in the Congress and in diplomatic posts, notably from the Lee family. Um, So it was obvious to people that the most populous, most extensive country was going to have a disproportionate say in what kind of political decisions were made. And besides that, after the Constitution, the federal Constitution was written and ratified, basically everybody agreed that George Washington would be the first president. Of course, he was from Virginia. So that was the way things began. And uh, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's party made a clear case that it had been a mistake to elect John Adams. That's what they persuaded the electorate of. And once Jefferson was elected, it didn't seem that there would ever be an end to this. I think actually, though, that James Monroe, the third of these fellows, thought there had been Virginia presidents enough and one sign of this is that he didn't appoint anybody from Virginia to be in his cabinet, which meant there wasn't going to be anybody who was an obvious Virginian successor to him. So we're going to have a f- quite a few years before there's another Virginian elected president.
0: And during John Adams' uh, tenure, uh, you, you describe how factionalism uh, and, and there was incre- you know, the, the sort of the birth of, of uh, political parties occurred. Uh, Can you talk about what the the battle lines were uh, in this initial, uh, after the initial founding?
1: Well, the main division ended up being over Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton's financial program. Congress in creating the Treasury Department said that the first Treasury Secretary should provide Congress with proposals for a financial program that Congress ought to follow. There was just nothing, it was a blank slate. So Hamilton did that, and logically, he used as his model the most successful, wealthiest country in the world, Britain. Well, a lot of people thought, you know, we just fought a revolution because we didn't want to be like Britain. And now Hamilton talks openly about assimilating our country to the example of the British. So the first party in the United States, the first national party, was the Jeffersonian Republican Party, which was founded to oppose Alexander Hamilton's program as Treasury Secretary. And then the second party was founded by Hamilton to support Hamilton's program as Treasury Secretary. And that ended up being essentially what the dividing line was. But, of course, there also were kind of social elements to this, too. In most of the states, the people who were more prominent tended to be Federalists, and the people who weren't tended to be Republicans. That was not true in Virginia, of course, but it was true in most of the states. So that's that's kind of a general outline of the way the party breakdown looked in the 1790s.
0: You highlight this uh, this quote from Jefferson in his first inaugural, inaugural address in 1801, where he says, every difference of opinion is not a difference of pr- principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. What was so significant about this remark?
1: Well, actually, apparently <clears throat> people who were present when he said this gasped, they were shocked. Why? Because it seemed to indicate that there was less substance to the the party differentiation than there had been. And what Jefferson, Jefferson actually didn't like the idea of parties. He didn't like that there should be this kind of social division. He said elsewhere that people would, in the 1790s, old friends would cross the street rather than say hello. Right, and and he wanted that to come to an end. So let's stress what we have in common instead of stressing what divides us. He also thought that with George Washington's death and, and the defeat of the Federalists at the polls, there didn't need to be this kind of division. Americans, he thought, were naturally, uh, were naturally Jeffersonian. They naturally agreed with him about most of the dividing issues of the 1790s. And so we could put these questions, we could put this division, we could put this unhappiness behind ourselves and uh, live out the revolution. We're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. We all think people who make important government decisions should be elected, and we all think there should be a union of the states. So that's that's what being American uh, is centered on.
0: Can you describe what Jefferson's presidency was like? Uh, obviously, there's a couple really significant events like the Louisiana Purchase, but what was the, uh, the, the general um, you know, the, the general experience like for people living under Jefferson?
1: Well, if you lived in Washington, you probably wished you didn't. <laughs> because nowadays we hear people refer to Washington or people who live in Washington and work in Washington as quote unquote, the swamp. But the reason why this term is used is because originally Washington actually was put where there had been a swamp. And if you wanted to travel from The neighborhood around the president's house as it was called until theodore roosevelt's presidency to the Capitol, you had to pass a swamp you had to pass through or around it and so you'd rather not be there if you weren't in congress now fortunately for people who were members of congress congress only meant for met for a few months a year which meant you didn't actually have to live there to be a congressman most of the time people didn't like that on the other hand um after the revolution Um, American trade uh, was kind of revived, and Americans were prosperous. They were paying down the debt. The only problem the Jeffersonians had with the federal government was it had decided to spend some of tax money on military preparation, and they thought this was excessive, and Jefferson said in his first inaugural address that one of his principles was going to be that government shouldn't take from labor the bread it had earned. But, of course, the implication was that the Federalist government had been taking from labor the bread it had earned, and this was going to stop. That was, one, that was one dividing issue. So the Jeffersonians thought, he said, that Americans' government was understood by Europeans to be weak, but it actually was strong. In fact, it was stronger than any other because it was the only government in the world which, if threatened, could count on the people to rush to the flag to defend it. And, of course, in Austria or in, in Prussia or in Russia, people had to be forced into the army. In Britain, people had to be forced into the Navy. And this was not the way in the United States. So being a Republican meant people pref- preferred their government. They liked it, Jefferson thought. And his uh, accession meant there were going to be uh, fewer taxes, essentially. People didn't know that there was also going to be gigantic Geographic expansion of the country under Jefferson and then under Monroe So that by the time Monroe left office America would extend from sea to shining sea And uh, there would be a substantially larger population than there had been too
0: Uh, Can you uh, discuss a little bit more about that About the uh, territorial expansion that occurred under the Jeffersonians?
1: Well, there were several important things One was that Um the Jeffersonians obtained Florida. Actually, the, <laughs> this is during the Monroe administration, to Secretary of War, which is kind of an analog to our Secretary of the Army now. John C. Calhoun had ordered General Andrew Jackson not to take either of the Florida capitals. Florida was actually two colonies in those days, East and West Florida. And Calhoun had ordered him not to take either one of them, but Jackson had taken one of them. And then they had a cabinet debate over what to do about that The way that the cabinet debates worked, going back to the Jefferson administration was that the least senior cabinet member would speak first and then the most senior would speak last. And so by the time they got to John Quincy Adams, the secretary of state over this question, what to do about the fact that Jackson had disobeyed Calhoun's orders and conquered one of the one of the Florida colonies. Adams said, well, it's true, as Calhoun says, we don't want to have American generals going off and starting wars with great European powers, despite the fact that they've been ordered not to. Obviously, we don't want that. On the other hand, it's already happened. So he said, I think we can make use of it. And what ended up happening was that John Quincy Adams wrote a letter to the king of Spain, and he said, essentially, well, we didn't want our general to do this, but he has done it, and you've seen how easy it was. So you might want to contemplate the question whether you would like us to pay you for Florida. But of course, the implication was, or not. And the king of Spain uh, then wrote to other leading monarchs in Europe and said, have you seen the way these Americans think they're going to treat us? And none of the other European monarchs came to Spain's defense. So eventually, uh, Spain sold the two Florida colonies to the United States, and that that's how... Florida, the coastal areas of Alabama and Mississippi, and the portion of Louisiana that's east of the Mississippi River became part of the United States. Because Andrew Jackson was insubordinate, and John Quincy Adams decided, well, we can make use of that. Um, that's, one, that's one slice of land that became American during this period. There are two others, of course. One is the is famous Louisiana Purchase. And the other had to do with what's called the Transcontinental Treaty. Louisiana Purchase was bought, the, it was a territory that was bought from France by the United States. Um, the American minister to France was a fellow from um, from New York named Livingston, and he had worked out a deal with the French foreign minister over this question of buying the Louisiana territory. Actually, he, common story is that he and James Monroe worked this out, but Monroe arrived in France after Livingston had already made the agreement with the French. So anyway, the two of them kind of, you know, were aghast that France had decided to sell this gigantic area to the United States basically for nothing, $15 million for essentially everything between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, just an unbelievable deal. And actually, in those days, it was bigger than that sounds now because it extended all the way up into Canada and what is now Canada. And so they sent the message back and then there was debate among the leading uh, Republicans in the United States over, well, whether this is constitutional or I shouldn't say there was debate. Actually, there was disagreement between the president and everybody else. Everybody else thought as secretary of state, James Madison told the president, well, you know, the constitution says in article two that the president can make treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. But it doesn't say what kind of treaties. So we have to to conclude that it means common kinds of treaties and those include treaties of alliance, treaties of peace, trade treaties, and this was true then, but it's of course not true now, treaties to buy and sell territory. It was actually pretty common at that time for European countries to buy and sell territory from each other. Now I can't think of the last time that happened. But anyway, Jefferson was not persuaded, so he told Madison, I want you to draft an amendment, a constitutional amendment, empowering the federal government to do this. And this went on for a while, and finally uh, Livingston, who was still in France, wrote to Jefferson, I mean wrote to Madison and said, you better hurry up. Bonaparte seems to have changed his mind about selling Louisiana territory to us. You better hurry up and agree to it. So they rushed that through the Senate, and Louisiana Territory became part of the United States. This cemented the popularity of Jeffersonian Republicans. Now, unlike before, if you, say, lived in an older part of New England and you had six sons, but there wasn't enough empty land left in New England for the younger five of them, and you didn't know what to do with those younger five sons, well, now there was something to do. You could tell them, move to Ohio. There's land there for you. And before that had been a real problem. But now this wasn't going to be a real problem. Jefferson was later going to say, well, this meant that there was land enough for Americans to the thousandth and thousandth generation. Apparently he wasn't contemplating large scale immigration. Anyway, that's the second major land acquisition of this period. The third one was what was called the Transcontinental Treaty which was essentially agreeing what the boundary would be between the United States and Spain. Because, of course, Spain owned everything south of Louisiana Territory. And basically, the West Coast was still contested between the Spanish, who had owned it, and the Russians, who had settlements in the northern part of it and all the way down into California, actually, and the British, who had uh, important possessions on what is now the boundary between the United States and in Canada. So um, John Quincy Adams, Monroe's Secretary of State, negotiated a treaty with his opposite number in Washington, D.C. And apparently this Spanish agent had been told, well, you can yield the line as far south as the Rio Bravo, which we now call the Rio Grande, right? In other words, Texas could have been included in it. The Spanish were willing to give up Texas, but Adams never asked for that. He, he asked for, essentially, uh, Texas to be the first part of Spanish territory to our south. So still, this was a gigantic uh, territorial acquisition anyway, and America now had a, a possession on the Pacific coast for the first time. So the United States were going to be a great power. Eventually, everybody in Europe could see that. People knew that. And why was that? It was because these... <clears throat> providential-looking land acquisitions had occurred during the uh, during the Republican dominance of the executive branch. And one thing they meant was that the, Repo- the Federalist Party just was done. It was kaput. By the time Monroe was re-elected in 1820, he got all but one electoral vote. And the, and the person who voted against him was actually a Republican governor from New England, right? He said the reason he voted against Monroe <clears throat> was... He just didn't think Monroe had the right personality to be president, right? It wasn't because he was a Republican that Governor William Plummer of New Hampshire, he was a Republican too, but he didn't think Monroe ought to be the president. So uh, you might say to some extent, the popularity of the Republicans was fortuitous as were some of these land acquisitions. and. If you did say that, I couldn't really argue with you. They were at the in the right place at the right time, or maybe Andrew Jackson was insubordinate at the right time, or maybe the Spanish decided they wanted some money, or Napoleon decided I'd rather fight the Germans than fight over some possession in Louisiana, or, you know, these things happened, and the Jeffersonians took advantage of them. Not that they were really brilliant, um, really brilliant acts of theirs, but they were kind of what they had in mind for the long term. The people like Jefferson had thought that ultimately the United States would own all of North America. In fact, he, at one point, Jefferson said, why not have a federal republic all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, right? So he thought the North and South America could be one country if they were governed federally, that is if they had a central government whose duties were basically defending the other, defending all the states and um, providing a common money supply <clears throat> and letting them have local self-government at the state level, which was really the way Jefferson thought the American government ought to work too.
0: Something that I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned uh, a little bit about that, just the declining popularity of the Federalists. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk a, lo- a little bit about maybe uh, just compare and contrast Uh, Hamilton versus Gallatin as Treasury secretaries.
1: Well, Hamilton and Gallatin, okay. Hamilton was a brilliant fellow. Um, He didn't make any pretense about it. He he didn't suffer fools. I won't say gladly, but he actually didn't really suffer fools at all. And on the other hand, Gallatin was probably in the same IQ range as Hamilton, but he was very affable. On the other hand, he was a foreigner. He actually was an immigrant. Sometimes you hear people say that Hamilton was an immigrant. Actually, Hamilton migrated from one one British possession to another before the revolution. I wouldn't really call that immigration. Uh, On the other hand, Gallatin was from Switzerland. And the story goes that Gallatin came from noble families on both sides. His father's family name was Galatini. They were from Italy. They had been among the founders of Geneva. And in fact, Gallatin had five ancestors, and I use the word ancestors technically, right, direct ancestors. He had five ancestors who had been uh, chief executive of Geneva. And on the other hand, his mother's maiden name was Durozy, which means she was from French nobility. But when when, uh, Gallatin uh, was in his late teens, he had been through the best schools Switzerland had to offer, which were better than any in America, of course. And one day he just announced Man, I don't like Switzerland. It's boring. There's nothing to do here. I think I'm going to move to North America. And actually, he had a friend from school who with whom he was going to do this. The two of them were going to take a long adventure. They were just going to travel to North America. They were going to take some slight amount of money with them and come here. And that's what they did. <laughs> so Galen ends up teaching French at Harvard for a couple of years. You can kind of imagine he doesn't really know English. I guess he's learning it by teaching French. And um, his friend is d- doing kind of odd jobs. They moved around a couple of times. And ultimately, Gallatin settles. In, he, thinks, he thinks Boston is boring, so he settles in western Pennsylvania. Yes, people who think Boston is boring settle in western Pennsylvania. So he settles in western Pennsylvania, and th- he's a young man. He, he ends up being involved in kind of tangentially involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. And as the story goes, when Hamilton got out to western Pennsylvania with the federal uh, forces, who were going to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. He had Gallatin's name on a list of people he was going to arrest and have tried for treason. Gallatin, though he didn't ever succeed in arresting him. Meanwhile, the people in western Pennsylvania really liked him. He had, he had written a statement on behalf of some of the whiskey rebels, and then eventually he got elected to the state legislature from western Pennsylvania and worked his way up through Pennsylvania politics that he finally ended up in Congress. One thing that was notable about him in Congress is he was the one person who could argue finances with Hamilton. So they were, he was the one Republican who knew anything about it. In fact, um, one time I was doing research in what used to be called the Virginia Uh, Historical Society, it's now the Virginia Museum of Culture and History in Richmond, and I came across a letter from a famous Virginia senator from the 1790s to the 1810s. He's called John Taylor of Caroline, and Taylor was saying in this letter at one point, I don't really understand how banks work, right? So that was one of the secrets of the Jeffersonian Republicans is they didn't really understand how banks worked. But Gallatin understood how banks worked. And he knew how the government worked. And he knew how the the economics of the government worked. And he didn't agree with Hamilton about the way the government worked. And so he ended up being a very prominent critic of Hamilton in Congress. Hamilton, of course, eventually in 1805, I think, resigns. Uh, Maybe it's a little later. But anyway, in the second term of the Washington administration, Hamilton resigns his position and goes back to New York work in law to make money because he didn't inherit anything. And um, Gallatin is known far and wide as the Republicans' chief money man. When Jefferson is elected president in 1800, then it's obvious to everyone that Gallatin will be their choice for treasury secretary. And Gallatin ended up being treasury secretary for over 11 years. So he was the longest serving major cabinet officer in American history. Still is. So you take the defense secretary, the treasury secretary, um, I guess the attorney general, right? He, he's the longest serving of these people ever in American history, over 11 years. And uh, very good job he did of it too. In fact, you often will hear libertarians say, well, they really like Andrew Jackson because for one thing, <clears throat> while Jackson was president, he paid off the federal debt. Well, yeah, it's true that Jackson happened to be president when the federal debt was paid off, but it actually was paid off in exactly the day that Hamilton, I mean, that uh, Gallatin's program for paying it off contemplated. So when when Gallatin, during the Jefferson administration, said, here are the steps we need to take to extinguish the debt. Here's the day that'll happen in 1835. It happened that uh, Andrew Jackson was president on that day in 1835, but all he did was follow Gallatin's plan. So Gallatin's a really interesting guy. I guess that's the bottom line. He's very intelligent. He was a very intelligent guy. Another thing he did was he founded New York University which is now one of, it's reputedly one of the five best universities in the United States. If you go to New York City to visit, as a lot of people do to visit Alexander Hamilton's graves site, uh, and you stand and face it, if you turn to your right about, uh, I guess about 135 degrees, you'll be looking at Albert Gallatin's grave, right? They're buried in the same churchyard in Manhattan. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of odd. So there's this great big thing on top of Hamilton's grave, and, and there's just a little marker for Gallatin, which I think is wildly disproportionate, but there you go.
0: Yeah, it, that, it was it was fascinating to read about him because it was almost like – I was familiar with his name, but honestly mostly because there is a section of NYU uh, – the Gallatin School that's named after him.
1: Right, there is, yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the performing arts school, right?
0: I think it's the it's like the the, in, the individualized directed studies. Oh yeah. yeah so right. you can go and you know take whatever courses you want uh, through it.
1: Yeah, but, that actually makes sense because Gallatin <laughs> had a wide ranging intellect. I don't know that I'd say it was as wide ranging as Jefferson's, but he knew a lot of subjects really well. He was a very smart guy.
0: It was a reading about him was, was really interesting in part because it was just a person that was clearly so consequential that I just had not learned that much about uh, previously. Like obviously everyone knows Jefferson and Hamilton, especially, you know, I I think uh, Hamilton's name probably has gotten more recognition since the the musical. right? Um, And I think everyone in America probably knows who Jefferson is.
1: Um, Well, the unfortunate thing about the musical, of course, is as, as fiction will be it's not exactly entirely factual but it is interesting I, I i like the play even though i wouldn't uh i wouldn't send students to see it in preparation for a test
0: fair, fair enough yeah I was gonna, you know, i wanted to avoid asking you about the uh, about the musical because i'm sure people ask you about it all the time uh what your thoughts were but yeah it's, it's you know it's it's good entertainment um but you know some definitely, definitely historical issues. Um, you know, the the another relationship or just two two people whose relationship is really fascinating is is Jefferson's relationship with Madison. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about you know what their friendship was like and um, and also maybe some of their differences too.
1: Well, they were by all appearances each other's best friends, so they had quite a lot in common. Of course, they both devoted most of their lives to government service and uh, to building the new the United States. Each of them had a clear idea of what the United States ought to look like. And those visions of the new United States overlapped considerably. I wouldn't say they were exactly the same, but they were they were very similar. So uh, if anything, when it came to the structure of government, which was Madison's chief concern, th- that is, we've talked about, i as I recall, three people who had very wide-ranging intellects and were very bright. Madison was different from them. He seems only really to have cared about government and government structures, right, the history of politics and the way that constitutions work and the way they ought to sh- be shaped. That seems to have been, if not his only concern, uh, his chief concern his chief interest, and that's what his career was about. Um, M- Jefferson, on the other hand, we've already said, had just, it, he would become interesting in something, and then soon he would be one of the world-leading experts on it. It's amazing. So um, whether it's architecture or archaeology or, again, ethno-history or the history of Britain. actually at one point he wrote a, uh, a little treatise on British prosody, right? <laughs> so um, he he never picked up a book and liked it without thinking. I need to know everything there is to know about that. It seems, and uh, this this ability to fixate on something doesn't. Uh, well, it, it I guess I guess the two of them had it in common to some degree, although again. Jefferson had far more wide-ranging interests than than Madison did. Um, Madison, during the Revolution, his father was an organizer of the county militia in their county in Virginia. By all accounts, Madison went a day or two to to do this work, and then because of his small, weak frame, he couldn't do it. So this brings us to the fact that even today, Madison remains the smallest person who's ever been president. Some estimates put him under 100 pounds. Wow. He just <laughs> was a little, little guy. And uh, people, some people, in fact, at one point, Dolly Madison, who was not yet Dolly Madison, referred to him as um, the bright little Hamilton or the great little Hamilton or something like that. Anyway, apparently everybody thought of him as a little guy. And how could you not? I mean, a a man who's under 100 pounds is very slight. Most women today aren't that small. So um, most American women, I guess I should say. So uh, what else do they have in common? Well, by all accounts, they like each other's company. People who knew Madison said he was very funny. People found Jefferson very engaging when it came to conversation. But the reason apparently was because of the breadth of his knowledge about things And Madison was just apparently witty, although there aren't a lot of surviving examples of his wit. There are a few and they are amusing. So there's that. Um, And of course, the two of them were from neighboring counties in Virginia. Each of them was the son of the wealthiest man in his county. I mentioned earlier in our discussion that it was the wealthy who held office. And that was especially true in Virginia. If you weren't wealthy, you could not afford to be, say, in the House of Burgesses because there was no salary. In fact, You couldn't afford to be in Congress when Congress first existed because there was no salary. So who could be in it? Well, the really wealthy people. In fact, at one point in the book, I tell the story of um, John Calhoun from South Carolina proposing in the House of Representatives that there should be a congressional salary. This was in the 18-teens. So the first Continental Congress first met in what, 1774? 75? And there never was a salary for members of Congress until the 18-teens? What were they being paid? They were being paid a per diem stipend, which was essentially supposed to be an allowance with which you could pay part rent on a, a room that you could share with another member of Congress, but you'd probably share a bed with him because there was probably only one bed. And then you could probably pay for some kind of gruel every day, you know, really, really low living. Uh, On the other hand, you could have people like Jefferson and Madison hold high office, and they came from substantial money. Jefferson's mother was a Randolph, which was the most important political family in American history. Not only was Jefferson a Randolph, John Marshall was a Randolph. John Randolph of Roanoke was a Randolph. He He was the majority leader when Jefferson became president. He was a cousin of Jefferson's. Peyton Randolph, who was the president of the First Continental Congress, was a Randolph. There have been tons of people named Randolph in American history. One line of Randolph's is descended from Pocahontas, although that's not Jefferson's line. John Randolph of Roanoke, the majority leader when Jefferson became congressman, was descended from Pocahontas. So these people, I mean, actually, John Randolph liked to say, my family ruled Virginia before the white people got here, which was actually true. Um, So these these people... (laughs) What do they have in common? Well, they had their money in common. They had a certain attitude in common. One was, of course, they didn't t- take any uh, they didn't take any guff from social inferiors. On the other hand, they really thought they had duty. They had a duty to be in politics. So nowadays, if you look at state legislatures, most of the people in them are going to be, you know, uh, lawyers who have their own practices. They're not in big law firms. Or they are going to be, you know, principals or they're you know, they're going to be kind of middle class people? But in Colonial Virginia and the early republic, that is the period this book is about, it was the, the elite of the elite who were, at least from Virginia, who were in politics. And th- why was that? Well, besides the fact that they could afford it, they were also the only people who could afford to be really educated. So if you had somebody who had been to William and Mary, which was the only college in Colonial Virginia, then almost certainly his family was really wealthy. And that meant they could afford to go. To, they could afford to be in politics. And besides that, why would the society want to pay for somebody to go to William and Mary if he were not going to be in politics? So there kind of was an idea in this group that, hey, look, if you're in this group, you should be in politics. It's it's your obligation. So um, I guess I've gotten a little far afield from the actual relationship between Jefferson and Madison, but. All of these facts inform their relationship.
0: I think that was interesting because, you know, I, I think that it, it helps to paint a portrait of, of Virginia um, and what the social, you know, setting was like. Obviously, you know, they the the industry, uh, you know, was it, there was a lot lots of slavery and there was tobacco. I think you call you call it in the book John Rolf Swede. I don't know if that was the name for tobacco, um, mm-hmm. but. And then you also describe, too, how, you know, even, you know, Jefferson wrote at various times about certain feelings about that slavery was something that should go away. Uh, But then even, you know, once he died, uh, you know, in order to satisfy creditors, his, you know, his slaves were not freed.
1: Um, Yeah, well, actually, there was a point at which he wrote to a friend, when my crop comes in this year, I'm going to make provision for my slaves. And then the Virginia economy collapsed. Land values fell by two thirds. So, if you think today of any farmer, if land values in his co- in his county fell by two thirds, he would probably be technically bankrupt, right? And that's the position Jefferson was in. So, we don't know exactly what he meant by making provision for his slaves, but he intended to do something, and then he couldn't.
0: It it seems you know like Jefferson, uh, he, he's is interesting in the sense that it's—I like, don't know—would you consider him a? Um, a, a you know, he, he was—he wasn't very good when it came to managing his money, even though he was very wealthy. It seems no, I don't like think
1: he really cared about it. He, he was I just he really cared about it, and I think one reason why he didn't care about it was he didn't have a son. And so he, uh, at one point, he said in his so he actually devoted a lot of attention to answering, giving long answers to male, young male relatives who wrote him asking about education. So before he became the father of the University of Virginia, he had given a lot of thought to how a young man ought to be educated. But somebody asked him one time, well, what do you think about women being educated? And he said, well, I don't want my daughters to be too well educated because, and these are his words, they're probably going to marry blockheads, he said. So I don't know why he thought they were going to marry blockheads. Interesting. Actually, <laughs> When he was president, both of his sons-in-law lived in the White House with him for a while. So they weren't, one of them was not a blockhead. The other one apparently had some kind of mental problem that made him increasingly hard to live with as he went on. And he ended up, although he was governor of Virginia at one point, he ended up with severe mental problems. So anyway, um, Maybe Jefferson would have husbanded his resources differently if, if he had had a son who was going to inherit. That was my, what my point was going to be. But of course, if that's true, then we can blame him for not being more careful about making provision for his slaves. Um, of course, he didn't actually leave us any kind of record of what he was thinking about that general question. We do know, however, that the only slaves he freed were Sally Hemings's children.
0: Uh, just in the interest of time, obviously, there's there's so much detail in the book about you know the personal lives of these people. Right. Um, but you know, it's just a...
1: they're of interest to people who are interested in the politics. Right. Yeah. I, and... I'm not interested in those things uh, for their own sake, but right. only as they're important. Yeah.
0: Right. So, so you know, to to touch on a very important event that occurred during the. Uh, the presidency of, of these three men, the Virginia dynasty, is, is the War of 1812. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the significance of this war uh, that America, you know, by certain accounts lost. I don't know. I, it's always unclear to me whether or not they technically lost this war, but I guess they
1: did. Well, the War of 1812 was a debacle. It was, it was just the uh, coming home to roost of all the chickens that were that were hatched uh, after Jefferson's first inaugural. It, he said, uh, we have the strongest government in the world because it's the only one that, which, if threatened, could count on all the citizens to rush to the flag. Well, he, what he was saying was, we're not going to spend a reasonable amount on military defense. And this was even though a world war was going on. And in fact, by the time Madison became president, the war was just enormous. In fact, at one point, Napoleon, the emperor of France, had three million men at arms. Now, at that time, France had the biggest population of any country in Europe, and three million men out of 25 million was 12% of the population, 12% of the total population, not 12% of the males of military age. So just imagine today if America had an army with 12% of the population, that would be 44 million men in arms just crazy
0: yeah that's absurd
1: <laughs> it's just just beyond comprehension so uh, these guys on the other hand thought well we don't really need to or at least they said and then they followed what they said that they didn't need to maintain a regular military because if a war came they could just kind of snap their fingers and one would one would appear. And on the other hand, Jefferson is still regarded as the father of West Point. He did think there needed to be a trained officer corps for the army. But when the War of 1812 it was came, it was clear that there wasn't a trained officer corps, and in particular, there weren't trained generals. So the generals were, by and large, incompetent. One reason why Andrew Jackson stood out was that he wasn't incompetent. Um, but there were just a, a number of people who were in command of forces who were incompetent. Madison did the worst. Just It's hard to exaggerate the extent to which he chose inappropriate people to be his war secretary and his Navy secretary. In fact, the first people he chose for those two positions, one of them, the Navy secretary, a fellow from South Carolina, had a reputation for being drunk by noon every day. And the other guy, the guy who was the war secretary, had been his qualifications for that job were that he had been a surgeon in the Revolution. Now, what what kind of choices are these? Yeah, that's uh, eventually bottom uh, of the barrel. <laughs> eventually, Madison would explain this by saying, "Well, you know, that was just kind of that was where the milit- the political imperatives led me. I had to have geographic diversity. I had to have people who could afford to take these jobs, which didn't have you know salary the way they do now. They, I." <laughs> This is what we ended up with. And many of the generals were also completely inept, besides which Madison didn't really keep an eye on what his immediate subordinates were doing, even though, of course, you would think this would be his chief concern since there were British warships off the coast of Maryland and Virginia and easily able to make their way up the Chesapeake at any time. So eventually, um because of this, mainly because of this, a foreign army ends up burning down Washington. And uh, I understand that one of the stairways in the U.S. Capitol is still called the British stairway because it's the one the British ran up when they were going to burn down the roof. Uh, it's just, it's just, it was just awful. The performance of the military, not so much the common soldiers, but the, the, people who were in the political jobs and then the ones below them, the generals, were just, by and large, awful. If it hadn't been for Andrew Jackson, the war would have been a complete debacle. But fortunately for the Republicans, news of the treaty ending the war came to Washington more or less at the same time as news of Jackson's victory at the Battle of New Orleans, which strategically in the war didn't really mean anything But because the word of the treaty and the word of that great American victory came at more or less the same time, Americans thought, we've won the war. And so even when I was a kid, I remember being taught Vietnam was the first war America lost. Well, if America didn't lose the War of 1812, it was only because the British didn't feel like fighting. In fact, at one point, apparently, the prime minister, the head of the British government, called in the Duke of Wellington, who was... Already the greatest. This was before Waterloo, but he was already the greatest general in British history. And he said to him, "I'm going to, I'm going to give you an army and send you to North America." And Wellington says, "Well, then I conquer the United States, and then what?" And then apparently the (laughs) Prime Minister said, "Okay, then we'll have a treaty." I mean, it was just the biggest debacle imaginable, right? So the only reason that Wellington didn't come conquer the country is what would he do with it? And, well, you could say, well, that's what happened in the Revolution, too. And to some extent, that is kind of what happened at the beginning of the Revolution. But, but anyway, the, Madison's performance as a war leader was, was, shall we say, less than could have been desired. And, and the people who were immediately beneath him in the military structure and then the people beneath those were just awful. Fortunately, when he fired Armstrong for not preparing the defenses of Washington He replaced him with uh, Monroe, who was competent. But um, Madison leaned on him for more advice than he should have leaned on him for, too. And that didn't work out either, as I explain in the book. It was a debacle. The whole thing was a debacle. The only way you could say that the United States didn't lose is, well, at the end of it, the British weren't occupying any American. Actually, they were occupying northern New England, but they decided to give it back because they didn't want it.
0: That's yeah it, it's I, I remember in my I think middle school history course when we were covering this I think we spent maybe half a day or half a class on the war 1812 <laughs> I didn't even know it, it was like yeah maybe the us one who knows um you know obviously we know know about uh, uh, you know a certain they, they, they just yeah they I, I think it's a, a kind of a forgotten. Uh, chapter in American history. Actually, um,
1: there's a famous book about it called America's Forgotten War. Oh,
0: really? Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. That must be why. Uh, it, you know, in the in the interest of time, we won't you know have that much time to cover Monroe. But I was wondering if there's if there's anything about Monroe's presidency and you know the degree to which he was uh, you know uh, showed a continuity between Jefferson and Madison and the uh, the Republican. Uh, sort of ideas or you know non-federalist uh, approach to th- to things. And if there's anything also just about the Virginia dynasty as a whole that you think is is interesting for listeners to say before they go and pick up your book to to read a, read about it.
1: Well, I do think it's a mistake to think of Monroe as something else. He thought of himself as a Republican, and people thought of him as a Republican. His program was Republican, so um, he. I mentioned before he had the idea there shouldn't be another Virginian president. He wanted not to have parties, which was something that Jefferson had envisioned in his first inaugural address, right? That Americans should just be Americans, that we should all be friends. Being common citizens should mean that we have something in common, he thought. And that was what Monroe thought. And um, Monroe also had the same idea as Jefferson and Madison did about American Indians. He thought they ought to be uh folded into american society they should become full citizens like everybody else which was a much different way of looking at it than andrew jackson would manifest when he was president a couple of decades later right so there's that which continued from the beginning i think i see monroe's administration as more of more of the jeffersonian era it it really Commonly, historians have said, well, there's a breaking point in 1815. When the War of 1812 ends, there's something different. And my question is, well, why is that? Madison didn't think there was something different after that. He was still the president. They still had essentially the same program. We want low taxes. We want people to be mainly farmers. We don't want to have a big military. We don't want the, the federal judiciary to be making important policy decisions. We we. You know, it's all one program. So, I think um, Monroe has, to some extent, been forgotten. The, the part of the reason I wrote the book is that there's never been an account of this whole period as one period. But even though Jefferson has always been a kind of favorite of of historians and the book buying public and. There's been a new kind of Madison fad among scholars since the late 1980s. Monroe has been kind of forgotten, and I think that's a mistake. I think the end of the. Actually, the way Madison's presidency ends is with the bonus bill veto message, where, um, according to John C. Calhoun, who's one of the two leaders of the House of Representatives by then, uh, he went to see President Madison on Madison's last day in office because he had heard that Madison was going to veto the bonus bill. He was going to veto a congressional bill providing for construction of roads, canals and bridges throughout the country. And he said to president Madison, well, why are you vetoing it? And Madison said, well, because it's unconstitutional. There's nothing in the constitution that gives the federal government power to build roads, canals and bridges throughout the country. And Calhoun said to him, well, if I had known that was your opinion, I wouldn't have given you know your your friends in Congress wouldn't have given you this this bad duty to perform on your last day in office, and then Henry Clay came to him the same day and said, "Well, why don't you just leave this on the desk for your successor to consider, thinking that he would sign it?" And Madison said, "Well, because it's unconstitutional." So Madison leaves office once again, reiterating the constitutional views that underlay the whole Republican. Uh, enterprise that was that the federal government only had a few duties and most questions were to be decided more locally, as locally as practicable. That's what Monroe stood for too. So I think it's one period.
0: What do you see as the legacy of the Virginia dynasty today? Uh, And is there anything that you think that, you know, is of particular importance for people to Remember, or to learn about that—that that might be forgotten. Like, it might be from your answer that you know people should should study Monroe more. Um, but I don't know. you have an answer to that?
1: Well, my re- my immediate uh, preceding book was called Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, and it was a book. It was not a biography of Jefferson. Instead, it was a book about Jefferson's political principles. And the first chapter, the longest chapter in the book, was about federalism—the idea that. Um, only a few powers had been delegated to the central government and the rest had been left in the states. And then Jefferson said in correspondence, if it came to a conflict between the federal government and a state, of course, I'd favor a state. But he said, if it came to a conflict between a state and a county, I would favor the county. And then within a county, if there were a conflict between a county and a ward, I would favor the ward. And why did he say that? Because he thought most people couldn't be like him president, vice president, secretary of state, governor, minister of France. But if you had a decentralized government, the average Joe or Jane could shape her life more than if the government were centralized. And this seems to be a principle that's very important to people in America 200 years ago. It's it's the main principle of this main party. And, and on the other hand, today, it seems to have been totally forgotten. Uh, people think uh, that government, government decisions ought to be made in Washington. And, and if you say they're not going to be made in Washington anymore, we'll go out in the street and protest. No, we want not to be able to make decisions by voting. No, we, not, we want not to have these things be decided locally. No, we want some small band of people in Washington to make all of our important decisions. So that you said what's been forgotten? Well, that's one thing that's been forgotten: the idea that it should be a republic, not some big empire with a a capital on the Potomac. That seems to have been forgotten, and that seems to me a much more uh, a much more attractive model of government than the one we effectively have now. That's one thing that you can take from this book, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it seems today in many ways that you know the the this kind of Philosophical debate between Hamilton and Jefferson is just more alive than, than ever, uh, and you know it wasn't really until I started like learning more about the, about these conflicts that I'm like, oh wow, it's the same exact conflicts that started that were going on the, during the founding are still occurring today. Well, uh, they
1: really are, except they aren't called that name. They right.
0: should be. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the new should remember
1: that.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm wondering. You know, with this book coming out, if there's there's anything uh, else that you are planning on working on next.
1: Oh, boy, I'll tell you, I mentioned a minute ago that my previous book before this one was about Jefferson's political program. And when I finished writing it it, now, the way the process, people may not know the way the process works is you write a book, you send it to your publisher. It takes months before it's published. And in that period between finishing writing Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary and the book coming out, I said to my editor, I said to the guy at the publishing house I deal with most. Well, I'm ready to get a new contract. I'm ready to start a new book. And he said don't you want to take a break you've been working on this for four years don't you want to take a break and i said oh no i have this great idea it's called the jeffersonians and he said are you sure and so i'm the kind of guy who if i have a commitment i can't do anything without thinking i should be working on my commitment so i've literally spent seven years now i can't do anything i can't take a shower without thinking i ought to be writing my book and that means at the moment, I am not asking for a new contract. This is the first time in seven years. I have not had anything hanging over my head.
0: So hopefully you're now, I do it have a couple time. of things in
1: mind that, that I may do next. And I'm kind of sort of feeling my way toward those, but I'm not, I'm not agreeing to anything yet.
0: Well, it's always good to take a break every now and then. <laughs> yeah, Especially. Well, it, I do
1: enjoy it at the moment.
0: Right. It's, you know, it, yeah, it's definitely, you, you, you know, it, it's, uh, I think when, when there's a topic that is especially, especially interesting, it's, it's really easy to just have it completely take over and you know, be the thing that you think about in the shower and waking up and going to bed and, and all that. Um, well, Kevin, it was so great to have you as a guest on the New Books Network. Um, the book is, is The Jeffersonians. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome.